Welcome to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety and technology share knowledge and experiences and discuss events and trends in food safety. Here's your host, Dr. Peter Teramina. So today's guest on the podcast really needs no introduction. Dr. Bruce Tompkin was for about 50 years involved in food safety as a profession. He started his career at the Swift Company, which later became Armour Swift, and then Armour Swift Eckridge, and then finally ConAgra. Um, Dr. Tompkin never changed jobs. The company just changed around him. He's really well known in the meat industry as a food safety expert. He has numerous peer-reviewed publications, and as an industry scientist, continued to publish the results of research, which really helped propel forward the knowledge in the field. He was also, for many years, uh, serving on the International Commission for Microbiological Specifications for Foods and the U.S. National Advisory Committee on the Microbiological Criteria for Foods. He's the author of many book chapters, including some really important ones like the nitrite and nitrate chapter in the book Antimicrobials in Foods. And he's served on numerous industry committees, research boards, and has contributed to the science well beyond what could ever be expected by most who take on this profession. So without further ado, here's an interview with Dr. Bruce Tompkin. I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Bruce Tompkin. Bruce, welcome. Yes, and same to you, Peter. It's a pleasure being here with you. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Um, I'm really excited to to hear some of your thoughts um, after we've read your bio. And um, obviously, you've had a long, illustrious career in food safety. Most places you go in the meat industry and plants that I visit and colleagues of mine visit, everyone's heard of Bruce Tompkin and references your documents and papers what do you think, um, what is your perspective on where we've been in food safety and the current state of things, and where do you think things are headed? Well, I think the, uh, we've made considerable progress in terms of food safety, and, and uh, with, especially in ready-to-eat products that have been processed, and, and you have to break that down into different sections, but... For example, with ready-to-eat meat and poultry products, I'd say that those are have been brought under control. HACCP has uh, been an instrumental in that. I feel that that uh, the industry is uh, farther along and, than they were 30 years ago. Uh, the plants have changed just tremendously. Um, the processing conditions have had to be upgraded with respect to listeria control. Uh, looking at the USDA data, their prevalence of salmonella and ready-to-eat meat and poultry products is, um, I think, 0.4% of samples collected and analyzed by the agency. 
Uh, so this, the evidence is there, uh, and I think the uh, consumers are, there are a couple of weaknesses. It's uh, one for certainly has been um, foods or products that are coated with a breading and they have a raw interior. Though that has been a nagging problem for the agency, for the industry, and for consumers for a long time, and relying on on labeling as the sole means to communicate to the consumer that they must handle it as a raw material um, has been, has not been effective enough to prevent the occasional outbreak or cases. Uh, that's a weakness, difficult to overcome, but uh, we have to reach some way of doing that. Um, the other thing is that while we've made such great progress in the ready-to-eat area, the raw meat and poultry has been an issue with respect to certain pathogens. I think they've come to grips with the E. coli 157 and its uh, sister strains that are causing illness. Um, and it's not perfect, but it's surprising how effectively the um, industry has learned how to cope with and to uh, manage that particular concern. Uh, it's also an example of where sampling plans have been effective. Um, it's not perfect, as I just said, but uh, I think the sampling plans has become an, a, an important part in, um, let's call it a, um, a, a, a step toward improving the food safety, but then uh, there have been all these uh, improvements in terms of using antimicrobials on carcasses and so on as they're processed. Mm -hmm. So I think we've made great progress and I think overall in the food industry it's uh, as as strong but it's those raw agricultural c commodities mm -hmm. that are uh, causing the problems that we're seeing still. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned some consumer impacts such as cooking instructions of par cooked chicken products mm -hmm. i know that's there's an ongoing outbreak in the in canada oh, okay. with that right. and of course there were the uh, pot pies in the u.s mm -hmm. a few years ago yes so still still some more education for the consumer what should processors be doing differently if anything <laughs> well of course marketing has a has a strong influence on on uh, that message and making sure that that message is clearly stated on the labels. Mm -hmm. um, I found in looking through at the various partially cooked products, uh, that is the browned products, um, the labeling is not very clear. You got a yellow label with a, mm -hmm. a, a brighter yellow background or something like that. It, it's as though the message is hidden, and I think that there, it's one thing to have the message on the label, mm -hmm. and it's another thing to be able to read it, and it's not clearly stated. That's I think that needs to be addressed, but mm -hmm. here we're now we're getting into fine-tuning a regulation, mm -hmm. but if, that may come to pass. 
You also touched upon raw meat and poultry and pathogen incidents. There's this ongoing discussion now about quantification of salmonella in poultry and and then the serotypes, pathogenic serotypes versus other serotypes that aren't notably causing foodborne illness. What do you think about this whole issue in, in raw poultry and maybe raw ground products in general mm-hmm. and what should we do in, in that regard to um, balancing consumer protection with reality that this is raw material? There are some strains of salmonella that are more highly virulent just as there is with uh, Listeria monocytogenes. There are unique strains that uh, are involved in the outbreaks, E. coli 5.7 and other similar strains. Mm -hmm. They have unique uh, ability to cause disease. And so it's a question with respect to the salmonella. It's uh, that has to be addressed, and I've considered commenting on that on occasion, but I think really that's an issue that the FSIS should draw in the National Advisory Committee to have a, a uh, more diverse input and provide some guidance to the agency as to uh, the labeling or if that's necessary, is, uh, what, what can we do to further uh, improve, or let's say prevent, reduce the likelihood of um, these outbreaks due to these unusually virulent strains. Mm-hmm. You are a longtime member of NACMEF, as well as the International Commission on Microbiological Specifications for Foods, and I believe you helped develop a lot of the sampling plans that ICMSF has put out. Yes, that that was a very unusual and uh, pleasant period of time when this these uh, things were evolving. Uh, with respect to the National Advisory Committee, I was on it for the first six three terms, and uh, I remember facilitating the discussion to arrive at the mission statement, for example. Uh, for the National Advisory Committee and also coming up with a, the the uh, description of HACCP and how that came about and, I could, uh, and many of the terms that we used in HACCP I, I wrote the definitions and like for control mm-hmm. I didn't think I was going to be doing that kind of thing <laughs> but anyway uh, I think that it was a, a turning point for uh, us in, in the age in the government as well as in industry to to bring about a new system of control for enhancing food safety and I think that uh, it was done in a successful and professional manner and something was left behind that's can be helpful mm-hmm. I'd like to make a comment about the salmonella uh, sampling plans and so on and uh, certainly I I was in favor of the idea of salmonella performance standards for raw meat and poultry mm-hmm. uh, it was discussed at length in the National Advisory Committee uh, it was a good idea and um, it would be putting it on a scientific basis to 
to measure and track performance across the industry, uh, identify weaknesses, but also recognize where improvements have been made. I'm very disappointed that it didn't turn out to be uh, to have the have the beneficial effect that we anticipated. For years, I've been tracking the data for salmonellosis in the United States through the um, annual reports that are issued by CDC. It's uh, through the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report System. And you can see that data being generated uh, for salmonellosis. And it's uh, all passive data. That is, these are reports from physicians to the local community um, uh, management system. And then it goes on through to C CDC. And it's all collected. And then the other means of collecting data on salmonellosis is through that um, net, food net, where it's a more active approach. And there they are um, going out and analyzing stool samples and so on, and actually looking for the presence of what's causing uh, diarrhea. That's, that's two different systems. Mm -hmm. The latter was supposed to be the best. As it turns out, they give pretty similar results. I've been to put them side by side for salmonellosis. They pretty much follow each this, each other, and um, but the disappointing part to me is that they do not show a reduction in salmonellosis r mm -hmm. across the United States. Mm -hmm. That is a failure, and I see no movement mm. to investigate why. Um, in fact, there was a, a statement made by CDC and the USDA both agreeing that there has been no, uh, no change in or reduction in salmonellosis in the United States on a case per 100,000 population, hmm. and they don't know why. Um, and that's despite all the interventions that industry's implemented. Tremendous. And in the meetings here, for example, there I've sat through in the past through um, sessions where they have shown the various interventions that the poultry industries mm -hmm. have implemented. And they went from, let's say, 20% prevalence rate uh, by these testing systems mm -hmm. down to like their 1% now prevalence rate. Mm -hmm. And yet, it when the um, HACCP and, and uh, Pathogen Reduction Act was passed and adopted in 1996, they uh, stayed in, in the beginning uh, there that the majority of salmonellosis is due to poultry, and it has to do with cross-contamination in the homes. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was fine, and they came up with estimates for the number of cases that would be reduced if this, when this program, these regulations take effect. And we've, that's what where it didn't work. We've heard, seen rather, publications from the USDA since then 
indicating, well, we're going to reduce the, the tolerance on uh, the performance standard, rather, to a lower number and of uh, salmonella in uh, raw poultry and uh, tighten up the standard and as each and they would come out with estimates for how many cases that would prevent mm -hmm. and it's failed every time i would like to see some rational discussion and uh, investigation into why we are not seeing that benefit mm -hmm. what is driving salmonellosis in the united states and how can we make that change uh, it would be another uh, opportunity for the National Advisory Committee uh, to step forward and be given the chance to uh, consider what factors are are inhibiting our ability to reduce salmonellosis. Mm -hmm. uh, cer certainly, if you put together that subject along with how do we address highly virulent strains of salmonellosis? It would be a very complementary uh, approach to investigating, looking at uh, our situation with salmonella in the country. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, I would encourage that be done. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. Do you think that the surveillance techniques, the sensitivity of detection of salmonellosis, and or salmonella in meat and poultry has it has confounded the apparent reduction of the pathogen are you talking about the um the, the improved ability to detect it essentially yeah i i'm not aware that no i it doesn't seem like there's a um through the uh, food net or for the other passive uh, approach where the samples or cases are reported that has been pretty stable um, if anything now we've got the whole genome sequencing mm -hmm. to uh, help identify source but it's not really uh, hasn't been hasn't been in place long enough to be able to have an impact if it's going to Mm -hmm. on uh, cases. So, so you, you've been in a lot of food companies. You've run food safety programs for large companies, mm -hmm. Armour, Armour Swift, Eckridge, ConAgra. Yeah. What do you see as the biggest mistakes food companies make, meat companies or, or non-meat, in managing food safety systems? Where do they go off the tracks? Well, I'd say first to begin, the the weaknesses often in the president of the company, the manager of a plant. It's really it's um, if you don't have support uh, from those key people, then you will you will not get the job done. It comes down to to a people problem as much as it is a scientific issue. You have to have that, uh, that management support. And I know that when we, as a company, uh, undertook the whole issue of listeriosis and listeria in our plants, uh, back in the early, late in 1989 is when we started and for that in the meat and poultry business, 
We did some investigations and we recognized that we had a problem we needed to, to address. And our president of our company essentially gave us, uh, gave me and my group, uh, a lot of free reign to get out and do what we needed to do to correct put in place controls, 100% support. Now, he was a hard, hard person to work for, <laughs> and, uh, and it was very effective. But there was another piece of it. Because he was such a hard and difficult person as a manager of the company, he could be very hard on, on uh, the people that worked directly for him in operations, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, when it came to controlling listeria in our plants, we as scientists couldn't go into the plant without the help and the cooperation of the business ma- of the plant manager. What what why did is convince the president of the company that if we have a problem in a plant, we have to work closely with that person, and if we find some or listeria in the plant, we should reward the person, mm-hmm. not take away his bonus mm-hmm. because he's got positive problem or positive samples. We have to reward him and have that person uh, request our help. He, and we became partners with all the plant managers by that that relationship. Uh, where we would not, their jobs would not be in jeopardy, uh, they would not have any problems that way, mm-hmm. but instead uh, we would be working together and that culture changed everything. And I've been in that, in that uh, doing that for, oh, 37 years is when I retired, but the last 17 were based on listeria control and I'd say that the first 20 were very difficult because I saw a lot of plant managers get fired because they had problems. Mm. And it was for that reason, you have a problem, they wouldn't tell you, would never know what went wrong. Right. And so it was very, everything was secret until we got into that different relationship. Mm-hmm. What are you working on these days? What sort of projects are you still taking on? And, and what do you, how do you spend your professional time now? Well, my, from a professional, professional standpoint, my time is I keep up with what's going on. I, I follow the, what's happening uh, in the industry. I think that uh, the... Um, the, the daily reporting that we get from um, uh, out of Washington State, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with Bill Marler's uh, rep- oh. system, yep. uh, that's informative. Uh, you get in all, sign up for all the emails, uh, alerts that come out of CDC, from USDA, FDA. So it's fairly easy to keep abreast of the issues. That, and to look for where problems are and why they're continuing to occur. Actually, I am involved with one committee that, uh, uh, with academics involved in particular, um, 
where we are uh, reviewing certain USDA policies, uh, specifically having to do with the cooking and cooling of of uh, ready-to-eat meat and poultry products. And uh, the USDA is currently um, issuing, in the process of issuing, an updated Appendix A and Appendix B, which address heating and then cooling. Um, I've been involved with the cooling aspect, uh, trying to uh, bring about some change in the understanding of the numbers of seeperfringens in raw meat and poultry. And because the original work that was done um, to establish the tolerance of no greater than a one log increase of seeperfringens during cooling uh, was based on uh, non-valid data. What occurred was that the data that were used were the um, baseline studies conducted by the USDA for uh, raw meats and poultry and uh, they unfortunately and I can understand why they did not confirm the colonies on the plates to establish that the numbers they were counting were in fact clostridium perfringens. Uh, they were just C. perfringens like colonies on the plates and uh, it was also assumed that those colonies were uh, from spores uh, in the samples. Neither uh, were correct and so the numbers of uh, C. perfringens were assumed by the uh, agency uh, at around 1998 to 2000 when they did this. They were assumed to to represent C. perfringens in raw meat and poultry and that led them to the believe, belief that numbers could be as high as 10 to the 4 per gram in raw meat and poultry products. Uh, which brings you very close uh, to only a 1 or 2 log increase and then you have illness. Mm -hmm. So the agency was very very concerned about that and didn't understand that the true number of C. perfringens spores in raw meat and poultry are more likely to be in the neighborhood of, well, certainly less than 10 per gram and very likely one per gram or less. There, you could get a lot of samples if you test that have non-detectable levels of C. perfringens spores. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a basic problem of concern and uh, now that's being reviewed uh, by the agency and it has bearing on how rapidly products must be chilled uh, after cooking, whether you have a tolerance of a one log or can you uh, relax it a little bit or uh, reduce or change it to a two log increase during that cooling cycle. Mm -hmm. Did you find it frustrating that um after all your work you had done in this space on seeperfringens in meat products and all the data you had collected that perhaps that wasn't considered as much as it should have been and establishing either the performance standard or the 
the guidelines? Well, uh, especially back in 1998 and 2000, uh, it was clear to me what happened, um, especially once a key piece of paper, a key review from the, the uh, people doing the risk assessment back then became available. It was a technical paper, um, and it finally explained how they arrived at that 10 to the 4 estimate and um, and the one log restriction. Uh, that paper did not become available until uh, the week it was, they came out with a regulation. And so it wasn't available for public review. When it did become available, then I got had a chance to look at it and looking through everything that had taken place and getting confirmation that they did, they um, from the analyst and USDA, they did not that they did not confirm the colonies as being C. perfringens. Put those together, and it was evident as to what had occurred. I uh, had I put a, wrote a letter and submitted it to the agency. Um, uh, bringing out and explaining what had happened and why the information is not that was not valid at that time. I also uh, made a presentation at a public meeting that the agency uh, made available. So I did that. Uh, yet the agency did not uh, change their their uh, the status of the regulation that they created. And we've been living now with, well, 19 years of, <laughs> of uh, the agency believing that we're on the border of um, food causing foodborne disease if you have a cooling deviation that exceeded one log increase. So I think that um, I was very disappointed in that happening. And I think now we're about to see something change. Good. Yeah. So progress eventually. Pro yes, progress eventually, but I'm afraid that there's some... Um, consider the number of scientific papers, papers published mm -hmm. uh, and risk assessments, uh, models perhaps, mm -hmm. that have been developed uh, using the um, data from the USDA that has existed during that time period. Uh, I hope that we're not, we don't have a problem laying in the woods mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it'll keep resurfacing. We've got to put everything back to a, a scientific basis that is valid. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this podcast and wanted to ask you about any final thoughts or comments you had. I think we're on the right path to uh, continue the journey toward producing safer foods. Uh, we, all the problems have not been solved. We still have many uh, weaknesses that we have to overcome, in particular uh, controlling pathogens on raw agricultural commodities. Uh, so that's one in particular. But I think I've here, for example, at the uh, meeting of the IAFP, 
It's really encouraging to see the number of young scientists in this audience. There's, uh, I'm very hopeful that we will have, in, over the coming years, uh, five, ten years, we have s such a strong base of young scientists that um, are entering into the profession, and I'm certain that they will do well. And uh, we can all only look forward to uh, improvements um, and safer foods as we um, move forward. I would like to say that it's been an exciting adventure for me over the, now it's 50 years roughly, uh, beginning in 1964. Uh, as an industry microbiologist, I'd say that it's been really an exciting profession and I enjoyed going to work every day. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it was like every day I went in, it was a opening a present. What on earth are we going to learn today? Yep. And what are where will that lead us? So I think that it's uh, from a, selecting a, a uh, profession, uh, there's constant change, constant op opportunities for improvement. And uh, uh, last thing I'd like to say is that finally, um, industry in particular recognizes the value of a strong and healthy food safety program. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Howard Bauman at Pillsbury was probably the first person to become a vice president of food safety. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I was possibly the second, and there was a big gap between the two. Mm -hmm. Now a vice president of product safety in the uh, food industry is a common position, mm. and uh, these individuals are recognized as the point person for the companies to uh, ensure the safety of their products. Of course, they can't do that job without the help and of everybody around them, but uh, it just is an example that um, food safety is, at a, is recognized as being at a different level than it was 10, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And you've certainly been a trailblazer in this space, and thank you very much for all you've done, and you've kind of set, you've set the standard for what excellence is in this field. So, yeah. It's been, been my pleasure. It's been, an, actually, I, I feel gratified that I had the opportunity to participate. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety share insights. You can find more information about Aetna Consulting Group at aetnaconsulting.com. Our handle on social media is at Aetna Food Safety. Please follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever your podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to leave us a review. Until next time, think safe food.